following sermon was recorded live at Foundation Church of Fredericksburg in downtown Fredericksburg, Virginia. Good morning, everyone. If anyone happens to have just a spare one of these microphones just laying around the house, bring it on in. Ours is going to break permanently any day now. So, you know, I know that you all have a few extras. Uh, please turn with me to the Gospel of John, chapter 15. As you know, we've been working through the Gospel of John, uh, the second half, picking, off, picking up where we left off a few years ago. Uh, this entire section, several chapters through here, is what we call the farewell discourse. This is Jesus' uh, last extended teaching to his disciples before he leaves them to go to the cross and then eventually to return to the Father's side. And so all of this teaching is sort of Jesus' last words, his final instructions to the disciples. And so it contains a lot of teaching and commandments and warnings but also a great deal of comfort and peace because the disciples, knowing that Jesus will leave but not knowing what that means, are afraid. And so keeping that in mind, we have seen Jesus wash the disciples' feet, promising them that he will wash them not only physically but spiritually and in soul. We have seen Jesus promise to deliver the Holy Spirit after he leaves to come into the disciples and into all of us to give us the ability to obey him and to give us assurance of our salvation. And now today we see Jesus teach his disciples that he is the true vine and that those who grow out of him will surely be safe and persevere. So please read with me the Gospel of John, chapter 15, verses 1 through 11. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. The branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments, and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. So today I'm going to begin by giving some background, some context to this passage that we might better understand it and hear it as the disciples might have when Jesus first taught it, so that we can understand and grasp the full weight of these sayings. And then next, we'll examine some essential elements within the text before moving on to how it applies to us today. So as many of you know, uh, Amy and I bought our first home um, last Christmas, so I've had it for a little more than a year. And uh, I, I have been working since that time on developing productive property. I don't like the idea of owning something just to have it. I like it to do something for me. I like it to be useful. And so my house is on a very small plot of land. Some people might call it a yard, but I prefer to call it my land. And I want to put it to work. 
And so I am planting a large garden, which contains, among other things, blackberries. So blackberries are interesting for a couple of reasons, and they're delicious, undoubtedly. Um, but most people have only encountered blackberries in a bin at the store and in the form of a thistle thicket in the wild. And so it's not really clear how the blackberries get to the store because if you've ever encountered a blackberry thicket in the wild, it's pretty obvious that someone isn't just out there picking them and taking them to the store. That would be impossible. There's far too many of them at the store for them to come from the wild. And so they must be cultivated somehow. And the way that they're cultivated is interesting because blackberries grow in a somewhat unique way. So a blackberry plant is called a cane. And a blackberry cane, of course, grows out of the ground. The first year that a blackberry cane grows, it only grows and doesn't fruit. And they can grow to be very long in this one year. And anywhere where the cane, due to the effects of gravity, touches the ground, it will root. And the next year, it will generate a new cane. So that's where new blackberry canes come from. The second year, the cane doesn't grow at all. It fruits. And then the third year, it neither grows nor fruits. And from then on, that cane will never grow or fruit again. So the first year canes grow, the second year canes fruit. And so you can see then why blackberries in the wild quickly become a thicket, because they're growing back into the ground and then growing back into the ground over top of each other. They're all anchored together. They grow with no particular order. And all of the old canes, the third year and beyond, stay there and just form this dense, thick mass that causes the entire plant to be unproductive, or at least inaccessible. And we actually have a wild grapevine in our yard, too. And they have kind of a similar problem. The main vine will grow as high up a tree as it can, and then the branches grow out of it and droop downward. And they form this big tangled mass. I'm sure you've seen it. My wife thinks that they're very pretty, but they're also messy and in the way. And even though that particular grapevine appears to be very healthy and produces a huge amount of very tiny wild grapes, most of them are useless because either I can't reach them because they're too high up or they're too deep within the thicket or because the branches on the inside are blocked from the sun by the branches on the outside. So these are examples of different ways that a plant can grow and maybe even fruit but not be a productive plant and not produce good fruit. So a prudent gardener will solve these problems through shaping and pruning. Both are necessary to make a plant from a wild plant into a productive plant. How do you solve the problem of the vineyard? You grow the branch up a little bit and then sideways along a string. So you've surely seen, if you drive past a vineyard, there are nice neat rows and the vines grow up out of the ground and then they grow horizontally along a string. And then the branches that come off of that main vine, they grow up or down, and they're all kept in nice, neat, tidy rows so that the gardener can walk past and see, this is a healthy vine, this branch has fruit, this one doesn't. He can access them all. They all get the right amount of sun. Once a branch stops producing, it's easy to identify and remove. And the same with the blackberries. Those third-year canes, you have to cut them away. They're wasting resources. They're just sitting there. They're consuming energy from the plant. They're producing no fruit, and they're in your way. The only way to rightly cultivate a vine, a grape, a blackberry, any vining plant, is to carefully shape it and prune it. And so many of you know that I would love to go on endlessly about my garden plans, but I do have a reason for explaining this. 
So in Jesus' teaching here in John 15, this is what we call one of Jesus' I am statements from the Gospel of John. In each I am statement, Jesus says, I am something, as a way to identify himself and to teach his disciples about his true nature, which is not only God, but also the fulfillment of the Old Testament promises about him. And so these I am statements are kind of like parables in the sense that Jesus says, I am the true vine, I am the light of the world, I am the living water. These are, these are familiar and comfortable ideas to the disciples. When they hear a vine, they recognize that. They understand that's a common part of their life. Grapes were a staple crop to them. And not only that, but these I am statements are also typically closely tied to a Jewish festival or tradition or prophecy or teaching that would also be very familiar to the disciples. And so when Jesus says, I am the true vine, it's kind of like a parable, but it's a little bit more than that. If it were just a parable, Jesus would have said, I'm like a vine. But instead, he says, I am the true vine. And so in order to really wrap our heads around what he's saying, we need a little bit of this background information. So when Jesus talks about branches and pruning, we think, yeah, okay, I've heard of pruning, you know, you prune your rose bushes or something, but, but his listeners in the day, because of their background, their baseline knowledge about how vining plants work, which everyone would have because it was all around them, they have additional context and help that helps them understand more what Jesus was saying. And so hopefully my explanation, my crash course in vining fruits has given us a little bit of a similar baseline so that we understand the importance of pruning and shaping for these vining plants. It's not just helpful, it's necessary to produce a plant that produces good fruit. And then on top of that, the disciples are also going to have a strong connotation in their minds about vines from their cultural upbringing. Any Jewish boy would be very familiar with the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament, the books of the law, and many of them would have heard throughout other times and places works of prophecy, and many of the songs in scripture would have been comfortable and familiar to them, maybe even set to like folk music. So these are just traditional, comfortable, familiar words. And so when Jesus says vine, all of the disciples are probably thinking of roughly the same thing. The most relevant reference to a vine from the Old Testament is probably Isaiah 5, 1 through 5. This is Isaiah singing a song to the Lord. Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. He looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. Also relevant, Psalm 88, you brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. Jeremiah 2, 21, I planted you a choice vine, holy of pure seed. How then have you turned degenerate and become a wild vine? And lastly, Hosea 10, 1 and 2, Israel is a luxuriant vine that yields its fruit. The more his fruit increased, the more altars he built. As his country improved, he improved his pillars. But their heart is false. Now they must bear their guilt. The Lord will break down their altars and destroy their pillars. So hopefully the pattern becomes clear. Each of these passages is part of a song or a poem, and all of them treat Israel, that is, God's people, as a vine that God, as the gardener, is growing, tending, and cultivating. 
God desires for Israel to produce fruit in the form of worship and obedience and faithfulness to him. And yet, in the motif of the vine, Israel is always a failure in these regards. The image of a vine and a vineyard is one of a caring gardener and a fruitless plant. Even the fruit that it does produce is wild. Wild grapes are sour and tiny. They're almost useless. There's hardly any fruit, and they don't taste good. So if you plant a beautiful grape vine and it produces nothing but wild grapes, it's worthless. And so then with this worthless grapevine, what is the gardener to do? He has provided everything that the vine needs to bear fruit, good soil and shining sun and water and care, and yet it produces bad fruit or no fruit at all. And the only thing left to do then is to remove the useless branches. Like all good gardeners, the Lord must prune his vine in order that it might bear good fruit. And so when Jesus says, I am the true vine, the disciples, students of Jewish law and the Bible, as all were, would have immediately understood the true vine. Jesus is saying he is replacing the bad vine that is Israel's heart, and he's replacing it with himself, the true vine. So no longer is the path to God through the nation of Israel, but rather through Jesus. Jesus is here saying, like he does in all of his I am statements, in one way or another, Jesus is saying, I am salvation. And it is only if we abide in Jesus that we can bear the good fruit that the gardener desires. So with this big picture understanding more firmly in our grasp, I'm going to read the passage again so that we can apply some deeper analysis and hopefully derive some better understanding from the teaching. I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples." As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. So it is clear then, with some context, that Jesus is describing the difference between those who are truly God's people, those who abide in him, the true vine, and produce good fruit, and those who do not. Those who produce fruit will remain. Those who do not will be cut off. And in order to produce good fruit, 
the branch must abide in the true vine. So when preaching, I don't often like to focus too intently on a single word. It can be useful for study to do this, but it's too easy to get lost in the weeds. And yet it's impossible in this text to ignore the word abide. In this particular translation, it appears nine times in 11 verses, almost to the point that it kind of sounds weird in your mouth from saying it so many times in a row. Abiding is clearly the focal point of this teaching, and so it's necessary to give some attention to the word, especially since it's not a word that we use every day. I don't talk about abiding on a regular basis. So simply put, to abide means to remain, to persist, to stay. And in certain contexts, abide can even mean to live inside of. It would be the verb form of my humble abode. I abide where I live. And so how do we abide in Christ? First of all, it says right in this passage that to abide in Christ is to obey him. If you keep my commandments, he says, you will abide in my love. And it's common in other places in scripture, I'm sure you're familiar with the language, to say that those who are Christians are in Christ. And this passage serves, among others, that it is not merely enough to open the door, but one must step inside the Lord's sanctuary and stay there forever. Another word that we would use is to persevere. And the, the, the idea of perseverance is tricky sometimes, and it's a common source of confusion for many Christians. Because if Jesus saves us through his work on the cross, why must we also persevere? Many places in the Bible we are told that we must continue to press on, to persevere, to remain, to abide, to obey. But what happens if we keep sinning? What happens if we keep sinning a lot? What if we persevere for some time, but then stop for a season or forever? Does perseverance cause salvation in some way? Do we participate in the work required to save us, or is it merely evidence? And so to put a really fine point on the question, what is required to count as persevering? And can a person lose his salvation if he doesn't? A quick reading of this text makes it seem like Jesus is saying that there are those who are attached to the vine, but who will ultimately be removed before the end. So let me try to bring an answer to some of these questions, because a careful reading of this very text of Scripture answers all of them. So as I said before, this text reads a lot like a parable. And a parable is a short story about a common experience designed to communicate typically one main point. As when reading a parable, it's wise to take it more or less at face value, to read it just on its own terms. It can be tempting to try to overinterpret a parable. You know, we see, okay, God is the vine dresser, Jesus is the vine, I'm the branch, obedience is the fruit, well, what are the roots? What's the sun? What if birds come? But these things aren't in the text. So we try to avoid over-interpreting. Don't put too much pressure on the analogy. If we try to take that analogy to a, a logical conclusion that it's not designed to bear, we can produce bad theology from what is meant to be a simple point. And so the best way to avoid these traps is to simply stick to what the Bible says in a parable and not push too far down the road of maybe what we would call logical analysis. So it's clear that this parable is about 
perseverance and obedience. But let's not ask too many questions of it before we first consider what it has to say about itself. So remember that I said this section is in the context of Jesus' last days on earth. The disciples know that Jesus will soon be leaving them, but they don't know exactly what that means. So they're routinely confused. Jesus told them, follow me. Well, how are they going to follow him after he leaves? Because he also has said, where I'm going, you cannot go. Jesus has recently promised that the Holy Spirit will come after him to be with them, and that Holy Spirit will be our help and our assurance. The Spirit will, will give us the ability to obey. And so then we see here that he teaches that that obedience delivered by the Holy Spirit to those who are in Christ will be the evidence of our perseverance. How will we know if we are abiding in Christ? How can we tell if we are persevering to the end? We will know by our fruit, by our obedience, which is evidence of the Spirit within us. So you can see already, just from a little bit of a closer reading, that the perseverance, the abiding, the obedience that this passage speaks of is less of a verb and more of a condition. Because the way we commonly use the word to persevere means like to grit your teeth and stick to it. You know, you really, you work through that tough situation and you come out the other side and you, you persevered. But there is another way to use the word, a way more similar to the word that we find in the text, to abide. It's a little bit more of an old-fashioned use, but we would say that something can persevere simply by virtue of having lasted a long time. The English language has persevered for centuries, the technology to make the wheel for millennia. But the English language and the wheel are not actors. They have not done anything to persevere all this time, and yet it is still perfectly right to say that they have persevered. And so this is the perseverance Jesus is teaching about. This is what it means to abide. The fact that you are continuing to obey is the evidence that you are abiding in him. Abiding isn't, it isn't an action or a choice or an effort that you put forth, but a status that you have. I'm not telling you, Jesus is not telling you, I want you to try really hard to abide in me. He is telling you, you either are or are not abiding in me. So you can ask yourself, not can I work harder to abide, but rather, am I abiding? Do I act like someone who is in Jesus? It's a different question, but it is still a challenging question. But let us set that question aside just for a moment to address a few other textual issues, and then we'll return to that question again as we move into an application for ourselves. So having understood more fully what Jesus means by abide, I would also like to address two specific questions that arise from the text. First, what does Jesus mean when he says, apart from me, you can do nothing? And second, what is the significance of the conditional language? So many ifs in this passage. If you. If you. What does that mean? And what does it mean to be removed then? If you do not bear fruit, you'll be removed. Does that mean that we can fail to abide and therefore lose our salvation? And so then hopefully by answering these two major questions, we will then be more prepared to answer for ourselves, do I abide in Jesus? So let's take them in order. First, Jesus says, abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. 
Whoever abides in me, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. So what does it mean to bear fruit, first of all? In both the Old Testament and the New, bearing fruit is symbolic, is representative of obedience to God, and especially positive acts of obedience, such as worship and mercy and faithfulness. Galatians tells us that the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. But surely Jesus cannot be saying that no one who is not a Christian, no one who is not in him, is capable of doing these things. Apart from me, you can do nothing, and yet, I know personally many people who are not Christians that outdo me in patience, kindness, gentleness. So are these things not fruit in their lives, and yet somehow even the absence of them is fruit in mine? And this is where the familiar metaphor of the vine becomes even more important. In Isaiah, for example, you'll remember that some vines do produce fruit, but the fruit is not good fruit. It's wild. There are branches that produce fruit outside of the garden. And there are branches on the vine that produce fruit that is not the grapes that the gardener desires. A branch might grow rapidly, a strong, mighty branch, thick and growing rapidly. And yet, it may bear no fruit. It may even leaf and flower. And when the time comes, the fruit born is sour, small, and no good. These bad branches, they may produce fruit, but not good fruit. And so this then is a warning. Jesus is warning his disciples. The mere appearance of a spiritual fruit is not enough to save. A branch separate from the vine produces nothing of value. A bad branch, although it appears to be attached to the vine for now, when the time comes, if it has produced no good fruit, it is worth nothing. Because after all, isn't Judas Iscariot listening to these very words at this very moment? He who sat at the very feet of Jesus for these years of his ministry and heard every teaching and done every good work, he will undoubtedly, as Jesus promises, betray him in just a mere few days. He has produced fruit, but it is sour. It is worthless and suitable only for destruction. And from this passage and from elsewhere, therefore, we know that the visible church, all those who claim the name of Christ, is not the perfect and final representation of those who abide. There are branches on the vine that may go quickly and strongly. They may last a long time and appear to be integral and vital parts of that vine of Christ. And yet, in the end, they will be shown to be nothing. There are those who will attempt to affix themselves to other vines, but nor will they be saved. No amount of good works, no amount of bad fruit can save apart from the true vine. For it is in Christ alone that those who abide bear good, true fruit. And so this text does not teach that we can lose our salvation. It is not warning against bearing good fruit and then ceasing to bear good fruit, but rather it warns against the appearance of abiding in the true vine. And yet when the harvest comes, having nothing to show. So then hear this from Jesus' teaching today. If you are not in Christ, 
if you bear no fruit, or if you are trying to bear fruit of your own strength, or if you are following another vine in a vain attempt to grow, or perhaps most dangerous of all, if you think yourself saved due to your mere affiliation with Christ. This is a warning to you. Effort does not save you. False vines cannot bear true fruit. And any fruit that you think that you have produced of your own strength is not in Christ, but it will show itself to be wild and sour. So confess Jesus as Lord today. He is the true vine. He is the only way to God. Follow him. Abide in him and in no other. Allow him to clean you of your diseased heart so that you can produce the good fruit of repentance that is necessary to be saved. But then just as there are those who are confident in their fruit when they should not be, there are also those who question and fear when they should not. Perhaps it is merely that you take your sin very seriously, undoubtedly a good thing. Perhaps your conscience is weaker than another and it causes you distress. Or perhaps you lack sufficient trust in Jesus, that he will save you in the end. And so when you hear language, like in this teaching, your heart may be wearied. When you hear Jesus say, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, and you wonder, am I on the good side or the bad side of the if? Am I keeping them enough? What if I am one of those people, one of those false branches that's fooling myself, what if I will be cut off to wither and burn? And it is in passages such as these, then, that the most fear-inducing word is often if. If you abide in me. If you keep my commandments. How do we know? How can I tell if I am on the right or the wrong side of the if? But you must remember that this language, the conditional language, the if, isn't for God's sake. God is not up there watching you and wondering if you're going to persevere. He's not hoping that you will manage. He knows. He has decided and done it. And more than knowing, he's the agent of your salvation, and he's the one who produces the fruit and the perseverance. He is the vine dresser, tending the vine and pruning the branches and gathering the fruit. So the if here is not from God's perspective, but it's actually for you. Not for you to measure up to, but for you to be able to tell if you do in fact abide in Jesus. If, in this text, can be, and it should be, a word in fact of comfort, not of fear. And there are many indicators of this, even right here in the text. First and foremost, even as he opens the teaching, Jesus says, Already you are clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Surely the disciples will here recall Jesus washing their feet, perhaps mere days ago. Jesus said at that time that if he doesn't wash you, you can never be clean. But this also means that the, the converse is true. If Jesus does wash you, then you surely will be clean. And so this is undoubtedly why he recalls to the disciples' mind 
this message of cleanliness before warning them to persevere, to assure them that he is not calling them to abide in their own ability to clean themselves. Because after all, at the crucifixion, they will fail in this to a man. But he says, no, those who are washed will abide. Does Jesus not say you will abide? He's not offering the option. He's not saying if you obey enough, you may then attempt to abide. You're not invited to apply to abiding. So these are not conditional statements that we aspire to as much as they are statements of certain consequences. If you obey, then you will abide. Not that you can, but that you will abide. If you are one of those branches who bears good fruit, it is surely because you are one of those who abides in the true vine. If you are one of those who remains in Christ, then you are surely one of those who will obey his commandments. For we must not only abide in Christ, but also Christ promises that he will likewise abide in us. To be in Christ is to have Christ in you. He has sent the Holy Spirit as a helper for this very reason, to abide in us and to develop in us the fruit of the Spirit, which is the proof of our joining to the true vine. There is no way to be truly joined, to truly abide in the vine without the vine becoming a necessary part of you. And so in this time on earth, we, of course, are not promised perfection. Because after all, the vine dresser prunes the healthy branches. The lingering effects of sin surely do still infect us, requiring God to discipline us as a loving father would. But that very discipline is the evidence of the goodness in our lives. For that branch that bears good fruit is not cut off, but pruned that it might bear more fruit. So do not fear. If you're weak or worried, if you feel like a, a shaky or withering branch, do not fear if you have sinned. Abide in Christ. Remain in Christ. Rest in Christ. Do not succumb to the trap of chasing self-powered obedience to attempt to assure your fearful soul, but welcome Christ's presence in you as the route to and evidence of your presence in him. Read his teachings. Pray to the Father. Be patient in your sanctification. Your growth is slow and complicated, and it goes off in directions that we don't always understand. And yet, the vine dresser is trustworthy to prune and shape you in the way that is necessary for you to bear good fruit. And brothers and sisters, who are fellow members here, ask each other to vouch for the fruit of the Spirit in your life. This is one of the great blessings to come from being a genuine member of a church that takes that seriously. If we truly know one another, if we are accountable to each other and for each other, then are we not positioned better than any others to evaluate and affirm the fruit in our lives? For we are Christ's body together, and how can the body not be joined to the head? So I hope that I have done justice to the comfort that can come from this teaching of Jesus. It is a warning, a hard saying, 
to those who would bear false fruit, but it can also be a balm to soothe the tender soul. For Jesus himself says, These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. So to abide in Christ is to persevere, to obey, and ultimately to rest, knowing that Christ's joy, his joy, is in you, and that your joy in him will be full. So what then can you take away with you today? As with so many of Jesus' teachings, they're almost proverbial in the layers of meaning and application that we can take from them. And this one has something to say for every type of hearer. At first, one can hardly miss the warning. To abide in Jesus is to obey. If you think you abide, but there is no obedience, repent now. The mere appearance of fruit, the mere desire for fruit, is not sufficient evidence that you abide in the true vine. If you are relying on your nearness to the vine, your affiliation with the vine, it is not enough. You must abide in Christ, giving yourself over to him fully, not to Christ plus your efforts, not to Christ as one among many others. Jesus is the true vine. And if he does not abide in you and you in him, the only place for you is the fire. So take your chance now to repent. Be grafted into the true vine, adopted to the only way to God. Second, to those who seem to bear fruit, whose fruit appears to be good and true, perseverance is the true good fruit. Momentary growth and rapid progress are not the highest evidence of salvation. Rather long, slow, abiding, remaining faithfulness is what marks a genuine believer. This is why we at Foundation don't baptize or take into membership quickly. A quick profession and a sudden change are often true marks of repentance and grace from God. But true fruit is only proved out over time. And so if you are growing now, if you are growing and flowering and budding, do not stop. Do not abandon Christ. Do not think yourself complete. But likewise, do not rely on your own grit to continue. If you truly abide in Christ, then he too abides in you. Remain and rest and persevere in that. Your sanctification, your bearing of fruit, is a work of the Holy Spirit in you and not of your own strength. So do not be disheartened that you are not yet perfected. Times of growth will come, but likewise times of pruning. Do not fear, but simply abide in Christ. And lastly, if these things are true, and they surely are, they are for our joy. We can derive joy from perseverance like nothing else. It's one thing to see fruit in your life, to see a sin cut away or to develop a good habit of worship, but it is an entire higher form of joy to look back over your life and see the clear, long evidence of abiding in Christ, to be able to observe the sweep of change, the turning of seasons, the times of growth and the times of pruning, all culminating towards that great harvest of good fruit. It is a truly special gift available only to those who abide, 
to see that Christ in you, through the work of the Spirit, has in fact grown you into an entirely different kind of branch than you thought that you were, bearing good fruit in great abundance. Christ looks upon you with joy, seeing the good fruit that he has brought about in you, and it is given to you to rest in that joy. None can deny that our joy is not yet full, but should we abide in him at the final day of harvest, Jesus will gather us up like good fruit and will then finally bring about that complete and full joy to those who abide in him. So I will leave you with a return to Hosea to receive just a glimpse of the fullness of that joy that will await those who abide in Christ. I will heal their apostasy. I will love them freely, for my anger has turned from them. I will be like the dew to Israel. He shall blossom like the lily. He shall take root like the trees of Lebanon. His shoots shall spread out. His beauty shall be like the olive, and his fragrance like Lebanon. They shall return and dwell beneath my shadow. They shall flourish like the grain. They shall blossom like the vine. Their fame shall be like the wine of Lebanon. This is the joy that awaits us if we abide. Brothers and sisters, remain, persevere, abide in the only true vine, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your care, your tenderness, your knowledge as you cultivate us, as you grow your garden of worship to yourself for your glory. Thank you that we can be a part of it. Thank you for sending the true vine the way to you. And Father, always remind us that it is only through our joining to the true vine, it is only in Christ, that we can bear the good fruit that you so desire. Thank you for your Holy Spirit. Grant us through him the ability to persevere, the desire to abide in you forever, and the peace and assurance that comes from that good fruit that he has given us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All sermons are released under a Creative Commons, non-commercial, no derivative 3.0 license. If you would like to learn more or listen to past sermons, please visit us at foundationfxbg.com.